we are in a subject where Jesus is going to be talking about marriage and divorce. How many married folks we got in here today? Raise your hand. All right, lots of married folks. How, how many folks in here? Raise your hand if you want to be married. <laughs> the same people raised their hand. That was good. <laughs> what I meant was I was teasing the single folks. You know, I was trying to get a singles ministry started. So get some singles in here. We've had, we got a couple of married couples that met here in church. So I'm super blessed by that. So that's the best place to meet, to meet a spouse is in church, right? So in chapter 19 and verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And so um, we just came from the area of, of the Galilee. And when you go to Israel, you land in Tel Aviv. The airport is in Tel Aviv along the coast of the Mediterranean. And from there, it's Joppa where Peter received the vision in Acts chapter 10 and goes to Cornelius. And then you, you follow Peter's footsteps um, along in a bus, along up to Caesarea, which is about 30, 40 miles north of Tel Aviv and the Joppa area there. And, um, and then from there, you, you see Caesarea where the gospel first came to the Gentiles. And then from there, you head kind of east towards the, the northeast to the Sea of Galilee. And there Jesus spent much, much time. Peter's house is in a little city on the, on the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee called Capernaum. It's called the town of Jesus. I have a picture of myself standing next to the sign, the town of Jesus. And Jesus spent much of his time in and around the Sea of Galilee. And at this point of his ministry, he's, he's um, now highly wanted by the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And they're wanting, and the religious folks of Jesus' day are wanting to kill him. And so he, he goes into, in Matthew, I think it was about 16 or 17, we reach this point where, where Jesus begins a little bit of um, staying away from Jerusalem and the place where the religious folks are. And in this part, he's going to begin this south journey, the Sea of Galilee in the north, the Dead Sea in the south of Israel, and Jerusalem more south, closer to the Dead Sea, but somewhat in the middle between the Sea of Galilee and Jerusalem. And Jesus was there, and it says in verse 2, it says, And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. We got to be in many places where Jesus healed folks. One of the places that stands out when you're in Israel is the Pool of Bethesda because it's there in the old city of Jerusalem and it's, it's excavated exactly the way, preserved the way it would have been the day that Jesus was there and the paralytic man who, the story of when the, the angel would stir the waters, the paralytic man would go down in and, and Jesus said to him, do you want to be made well? And we stood there this year at the, at the Pool of Bethesda and the youth pastor at Joshua Springs shared a message, a really good message about, about that and standing in the place where it happened. You know, it's, it's, it's super powerful and it's super nostalgic. You know, and people ask me, you know, can you, can you feel the presence of God when you're there? I'm like, yeah, I can feel it like lightning. But the reality is you can feel the presence of God in your bathroom in Tooele, just the same. Because the power and the presence of God is everywhere and it's a condition of the heart. Jesus said, or the Bible says, that if you seek me with your whole heart, you'll find me. And for those that desire to seek Jesus, it doesn't matter if you're standing in the holy places in Israel where things actually happened or you're here in Tawila, God's going to touch and, 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 and be with you everywhere. God has the power and the ability, he's omnipresent, to be with you in the same way. But one of the things that happens while you're in Israel, it's kind of like a, um, and yes, it's kind of cool to be there and it creates an awareness of his thereness. But, but it's nothing magical. It's a city. Jerusalem, for the most part, is today a very secular city. 
and, and, and lots of things like you would find in any major big city going on, you know, clubs and bars and kids and people and things. And, um, you know, and so a lot of it is just, just a normal city to some extent. I mean, what's not normal about it is the Bible said that Jesus said that Jerusalem was the city of the great king. So he claims Jerusalem as his city, the only one in the world, the city of the great king. And, and it's like being at a, at a men's retreat or a women's retreat. You know how you feel when you're on a mountaintop experience and, you've, you know, and you're studying the Bible all day and you're with believers and you're praying and you're singing songs. And, you know, and then when you do that and you add the, the location to it, it, it is super special. But, but there's nothing magical in the site itself, right? Only in the condition of our hearts. And the magic of, of, of walking with Jesus happens in each one of our hearts. The magic of, of knowing the Lord and being intimate with God is a condition of you receiving and accepting and, and believing and being intimate with God wherever you are. We, um, we, we had some amazing times this year in Israel, and I would, I would hope that, you know, want everyone to, to see and experience that. I'm actually going to, um, people asked if I was going to show some slides or some pictures, but I think on Wednesday night, um, I'll, I'll take a few minutes and go over some more of the trip of Israel. And so if anybody wants to come and be a part of that, Wednesday night at 7 is our midweek Bible study. And if you're not normally a part, you'd like to come this week, we'll, we'll talk a little bit. I'll show some pictures from Israel. Um, so I got to tell you guys one story. I was in, um, I was in the grocery store. It must have been Friday morning. So I was on Israel time still, and so I was trying to sleep, and like 4 o'clock in the morning, I was wide awake, which is about noon in Israel. And so it was like, couldn't sleep, laying in bed, laying in bed, and finally I just said, forget it. So I got up, and I hadn't been over here to the church to see what happened after I left, so I, I came over here, it was like 4.30 in the morning, and um, got up, and I got in a jacuzzi, did some devos, and then I came over here for a little bit, and got to see the stuff that I didn't get to see, and, and it was about 6 o'clock. And so I headed over to the grocery store at Macy's. They opened at 6. And I was checking out. And I told the lady, yeah, I normally don't do my grocery shopping at 6 a.m. But I'm still on Jerusalem time. And um, I said, I just got back from Jerusalem. And she said, oh, my gosh, really? She's like, what, were you scared? She's like, wasn't it dangerous? And, and you know what's funny is that, that so many people have that concept and that idea of Israel. And I looked at her with all sincerity. And I said, I said, Jerusalem is the absolute safest place on planet Earth. And that's the truth. And, you know, a lot of people, some of you guys were texting me because you were watching the news and you were seeing that rockets were being fired in, 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 in Gaza Strip. And there was, a, you know, two Israeli soldiers died. And our tour guide, the morning it happened, he was in tears telling us of, of, of one of the Israeli soldiers that died. You know, which was interesting, I just thought, because he didn't know the guy personally, but, you know, nationally there was a, a connection, and, and Herzl, our guide, was, was emotional when he was sharing with us that, that one of the Jewish um, police officers, uh, military guys, died in that fight. But, you know, we didn't, had no idea what was going on if it wasn't for the news. You know, and I guess it's like, it can be like anywhere, you know, if you're, if you're in L.A., you're probably going to be safe in a lot of places. You just, you stay out of Watts or Compton, you know, and... You know, we used to say when we were living in Yucca Valley, the most dangerous part of the trip was the drive through San Bernardino on the way to the airport. Um, but in Israel itself, the security is so high. And there are some places where, yeah, but you just don't go to those places. We don't go anywhere near those places. We didn't hear or know of anything that was going on and other than the news. And we're in the old city of Jerusalem. We're in the Jewish quarter. 
And the old city of Jerusalem is, um, it's, it's the old original city of David, and the walls of the old city are a little bigger now. And sits right in the center of Jerusalem. That's where the Temple Mount is, which gets a lot of notoriety in Israel. When you think of Jerusalem, you think of that Dome of the Rock, which is actually not a Christian or Jewish site. It's a Muslim site, but, um, but it's kind of iconic, and it kind of gets the idea. Well, just below that is the Western Wall, and that's, that's for the Jews their most holy site right now. And they they meet there every every day and pray, and their schools are there. And, and so the old city breaks up into quarters. You have the Armenian quarter and the Catholic quarter and the Christian quarter and the Jewish quarter and the Muslim quarter. And um, we're in the Jewish quarter, and we're in the court, the food kind of courtyard area, and we're eating. And we're a group of 47 that's on this trip. So our guide is there talking to us, and Pastor Gerald is talking to us. And we're, we're 47 people, so we're in a group. And right and, – and, and, Right through the middle of the group, two blonde-haired little beautiful girls, not much bigger than Gabrielle, holding hands, are like squeezing their way through our group to get to where they were going because we were in their way. And we stop, and these two little girls are coming through, and um, they warn you there are a couple places where, you know, like keep your wallet in your front pocket because you're in big crowds, lots of tourism there, so they'll have some pickpockets in certain places, and they say, sometimes you never know. A pickpocket could be some little seven, eight-year-old professional kid that's picking your pocket. And so somebody told the joke. Somebody was teasing and like, oh, there's those little pickpockets. And I said, them two wouldn't have to pick my pocket. I'd give them everything I had. They were the cutest little girls you've ever seen in your life. And they were walking from their school to their house. And this group of Americans was in the way. Instead of going around, they just walked right through the middle of us. But, I mean, where, where in the world do, you know, six, seven, eight-year-old girls hold hands and walk from school to their house in complete safety? And, and it was just, you know, it was, I, I'm going to show you guys some pictures of that. We got some pictures of it. It was amazing. So, anyways, all right. So, Jesus is there, and he's healing. And, and then in verse 3, it says, Then the Pharisees also came to him, testing him. Somebody say, testing him. So, again, the Pharisees were constantly testing Jesus to try to trap him. They weren't wanting to necessarily have a conversation with him to grow, to learn. The Bible says, don't cast your pearls before swine. So the pearls is the word of God. And the wisdom for us as believers is using discernment that sometimes it's not wise to argue with somebody about your faith. If somebody wants to learn, they wants to know, they have genuine, honest questions, that we should talk to them and encourage them and teach them and love them. But if somebody just wants to argue for the sake of argument, you're never going to change that heart. You know, I heard a pastor say one time, if you could argue somebody into the kingdom of God, then they could also be argued out of the kingdom of God. And so, um, so these guys just want to argue. But Jesus uses that opportunity to teach you and I. And, and they said to him, the Pharisees testing him, saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? So um, in the book of... Um, you can turn with me if you want or just hang out. I'll be right back. But in the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 24, it says, what a man ta- When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanliness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of the house, when she departs from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. If the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then the former husband who divorced her must take her back, 
must not, I'm sorry, must not, of course, take her back to be his wife after she had been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So this was in the law of Moses, this um, right of divorce, of divorce. But basically what it said in the law of Moses, that if you found, and, and women couldn't divorce their husbands, but husbands could divorce their, their wives. And the law of Moses said, if you found an uncleanliness in her, then, then you could divorce her. So the rabbis of Jesus's day, Shimei and Gamaliel, those were the famous um, interpreters of the Hebrew law of Jesus's day were arguing and they were, one would say, one was very conservative and one was very liberal. And, and Gimiel being very, very conservative said the only thing that constitutes uncleanliness in your wife is if she's had um, uh, uh, immorality for, for adultery. And, then, and the other guy said, well, in the law of Moses, if she's committed adultery, it's a capital crime and you don't need to divorce her because she's committed a capital crime. That's not what it means. What uncleanliness means, in a very liberal interpretation, Shimei said, um, and he went on and on and on, explained what uncleanliness in your wife could be. He said, if she burns your toast in the morning, then you might find her unclean and you can divorce her. If, if you're in the street and you see another woman who is more clean than your wife because she's more pretty, then... Um, then that has constituted an uncleanliness in your wife and you can divorce her. You know, I've tried that. I've traveled the whole world trying to find an uncleanliness in my wife and a girl more pretty, but I never have. <laughs> so, so they're bringing this, this argument of the liberal and the conservative school to Jesus and they're, they're trying to trap him knowing that no matter what Jesus says, he's going to divide the group in half. No matter what he says, that half the people are not going to agree with him. The conservative or the, um, the liberal interpretation of what uncleanliness means. And the laws of uncleanliness between these guys went on and on and on and on. And, and so Jesus said, and he answered and said to them, have you not read? I love that. Okay, have you not read? What was he talking about? Read what? Read the Bible. So again, for you and I, you know, one of the things that God's been doing in our church, just with where we've been in the Bible, in some of the messages the last month or so, is, is been bringing this idea to you and I that, that there's a responsibility upon your shoulders and upon my shoulders to, to walk with the Lord. That, that it's not necessarily somebody else's responsibility to foster, to, to put a bridge, to help you to, um, you know, see that you walk with the Lord, right? That, that no doubt the church exists for those exact purposes, but at the end of the day, each one of us has a responsibility to grow in Jesus, to walk with the Lord, that God expects that in us, that God um, desires for each one of you. We, we spent a message before I left about David strengthening himself in the Lord and unpack that. And the week before that, we talked about Moses going up on the mountain and now the veil of the temple renting and each one of us being invited personally to come to God. And just been encouraged that, that there, each one of us has a responsibility to walk with the Lord. Amen? And, and so here, I love it that, you know, this is another layer where, where, you know, some of you might say, well, you know, this pastor says you can lose your salvation. And this pastor says you can't lose your salvation. Which is it? This pastor says that, you know, that, that you have to speak in tongues to be saved. And this pastor says you don't have to be speaking tongues to be saved. And on and on and on. This pastor says that, that, that there's, there's free will. And this pastor says that it's the sovereignty of God. Which is it? 
And I love that, that even though that happens, God, God might say to you and me, have you not read? And, and then again, the responsibility for you to be in the word of God, to make those decisions for yourself, to find those things out. And so these guys are arguing about which one of the pastors, which one of the rabbis is telling the truth. And Jesus says, well, what have you found in your own personal study? What is your interpretation of it? Have you not read? Now, of course, these guys read. Their, their whole life was to read and study and memorize. You had to memorize the first five books of Moses. Anybody want that task? And so in order to memorize the first five books of Moses, they would have known and read. And so Jesus says to them, have you not read that he who made them from the beginning, somebody say the beginning, made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So, so that there's a verse in Genesis that um, sometimes we, we just kind of cross over. And it's that verse where um, God says, I've made a male and female, I've made them. And we just kind of keep going. But there's so much theology in that idea. First part of that theology is just that, that, that men and women, if you haven't noticed, are very different. Right? And, and what happens in marriage so often is we, we want our husbands or our wives to react to situations in life the way that we do. And, and a husband is, is wired to, you know, if, if there wasn't for sex drive, you know, men, men would just, we'd just hunt and fish all day, every day for the rest of our lives. And, you know, it wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't matter. And, and, you know, two guys go and they spend a week hunting and, and, and fishing and, we sit shoulder to shoulder and we grunt and we kill things and, you know, we come home and our wives say, well, you know, how was Dan's wife? And I say, Dan's married? <laughs> yeah, how are his kids? Dan has kids? You know, I didn't talk to Dan on the weekend. We grunted and we killed things and, and, and my wife thinks this is so crazy. Like, what's wrong with you? Because if she went away with Wendy for a week and she came home, she would know absolutely everything there was about Wendy's dogs, cousins, friends, neighbors, mailman, and everything in between. And not only that, she would have to tell me all of it. She would have to repeat to me when she got home the entire week's conversation. And, and, and then, you know, and I'm having a hard time and I'm struggling to, to, to follow the conversation and be interested. And, you know, and, and she thinks it's so crazy. And what we, what we want to do is we want our, our spouses to act like like our friends and we struggle in marriage because we don't get it that you know they're different and God says he's made us male and female now one of two things happened God made a huge mistake when he made the woman not the man right or that's the way he designed it that that God God gave you know when for for a child a child has gets 23 chromosomes from its mom and 23 from its dad right and I think that in God, it's kind of similar in a way that, that God gave part of who he was to the women and his strengths to the women and part of who he was to the man. And then he tells us that the two should become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. And, and, and in that, there, there's very difference, but both, both created equal, both created in, even in the eyes of God, not one greater than the other. The Bible tells us that God is neither man nor woman. He's, he's mentioned in the masculine all the way through the Bible, but, but God is spirit. He's the father. And, and God has created um, men and women so different. 
and, and, and for us to come together and complement each other. Some of, God, some of God's strengths in a man, some in a woman. Some of God's strengths are just, you know, men's strengths are just, just that. They're just physical prowess. You know, I know we live in a day where, you know, women want their rights. But last time I checked, you know, there's not too many women when there's a, a noise in the house that tell her husband, hey, hang out, I'll be right back. <laughs> yes, dear, let me know. You know, and she goes and, let me go sweep the house, I'll be right back. You know, it's usually, usually the man's role, right? You know, and, um, and again, so God created us male and female. And I'm not going to get into the, the you know, uh, uh, tangent on, on, on homosexuality here, but by design, God made us male and female. And, and the first commandment of God was to, was to create and procreate, and that doesn't work any other way. And so he says, um, Jesus brings them back to what's called first mention. Whenever, whenever anything in the Bible, we get the first mention, the first word of, the ma- of marriage, of love, of different things as you go through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, one of the, 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 you know, the, the, the rules of biblical study is called first mention. So he takes them back to the very first mention of, of marriage. And Jesus is going to tell them that it, it, it was God's intention that marriage would be forever from the beginning. That was God's original intention. God's original intention was that marriage was between a man and a woman, and it was for life. And you know, God defined marriage, and so men don't get to redefine marriage. Our culture doesn't get to redefine marriage and say what marriage is and isn't. God defined marriage And he says, have you not read? And then verse 5, it says, and he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And in verse 6, it says, so then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Um, We we use that in our weddings, that verse that Jesus just did, let not man separate. You know, it used to be that, that, that they would say in the wedding, you know, we don't, I don't say it anymore. Actually, I never have in my weddings. If anybody here has a problem or anything, you know, like some guy in the back jumps up. Oh, I do. They shouldn't get married. We don't care anymore, right? (laughs) Sit down. Shut up. (laughs) And then he said to them in verse seven, why then did Moses or they said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Now, pay attention. They said command. Now, Moses did not command, and Jesus is going to correct him on this. And Jesus is going to say that his original design, he's already said that his original design for marriage was between a man and a woman and forever. You know, Adam and Eve were designed to live forever. They were designed to stay together forever. And, he, and they said, well, then why did Moses command? And I read the verses to you. And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted. Did Moses command or permit? He permitted. He allowed And he only allowed divorce because of the hardness of the heart. To divorce your wives, but not from the beginning, it was not so. That was not God's original intent. And because of the hardness of man's heart, Moses put a clause inside there that that, that would allow for divorce in certain situations. And I say to you in verse 9, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. And his disciples said in verse 10, if such is the case of the man with his wife, man, we shouldn't get married. Who should get married then? It's better not to marry. So obviously we knew which school the disciples um, adhered to. 
They must have been in the liberal school of marriage because when Jesus said that there's no reason to leave your wife, even the disciples themselves said, wow, the, you know, their logic was, well, if I, if I have to be that committed to her, <laughs> maybe, it's, maybe it's better not to marry. Maybe I shouldn't get in, you know, involved in it at all. So Jesus said, only in the case of, of um, adultery is divorce allowed. Now, and then he says, you know, he goes on and he talks about that, that if, if someone divorces, they commit sexual immorality. You know, one of, the, one of the most asked questions on CSN to every man and answer, one of the most asked questions I get as a pastor oftentimes in the area of divorce is, you know, am I now people that are Christians and they, they read this, they didn't know it before and they receive this and they, they've been divorced and they say, am I living in sexual immorality? Have I committed or am I in sexual immorality? But what it doesn't say here is that, that this is the only unpardonable sin, right? So Jesus uses some very strong language. And the bottom line of the answer to the question is no, you're not living in sexual morality. But Jesus uses some strong language to illustrate that, that in that situation, there is sin. And there's sin on both parts. But, but for those who, you know, and the Bible says God hates divorce. It's pretty strong language, right? But, but the Bible never says God hates those who have been divorced. And just like any other sin, it's forgivable. And, and, and God forgives and restores and heals. But moving forward, we can't, we can't ha- use it as an excuse. Oh, I'll just do it and, and God will forgive me. And God uses strong language because um, he, he wants us to understand that, that he takes marriage and the vow that you took very seriously. You know, in marriage, when, um, when divorce happens, it's, it's usually the children. What's funny, in the very next verse, in the very next section after this, Jesus is going to go on and he's going he's to begin to talk about children. And there's a reason for that. And the reason why God hates divorce and not those who have been through divorce but divorce is because the, 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 the hurt for the individuals, for the children. You know, marriage is, the word in marriage that the two shall become one flesh, it's a word of binding, of gluing. And the illustration that we use is if you take two pieces of construction paper and Elmer's glue and you glue them together, a husband and a wife, and they're bound together in marriage. And then they begin to have kids. And so you take Elmer's glue and you, you begin to add more more family to this. And then you set it out in the hot sun, and, and for as long as they're married, it sits and dries in the hot sun. And then in order to divorce, what do you have to do to these construction pieces of paper that have been joined and glued together? You have, you have to separate them. And, ha- and can you separate them without them tearing? No, it's impossible. And, and as those children of God's lives are being torn through divorce, what, what is, how does the heart of a loving Heavenly Father feel? It's hurt. God loves you. God loves you as his children, and, he, 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 and divorce is, is painful, and it hurts him, and he doesn't want you to go through that. You know, unfortunately, uh, we live in a world that, that divorce is so rampant, especially in the United States, maybe not all around the world, but especially here. The, div- the divorce rate today is higher than 50%. You know, it's a little better in the church, but not much. And it should be. You'd think that the church would be better at it than the world. Because a threefold cord, the Bible says, is not easily broken. That's a husband, a wife, and the Lord Jesus, and, and, and the Lord woven in. And also the idea, the concept that, that we don't enter marriage as a test. We don't enter marriage as, well, I hope it works out. One of the best advice Lydia and I ever got when we first got married was that divorce is not an option. 
and Pastor Bob, who did our premarital counseling, Pastor Gerald did a lot of it, but for Lydia and I, he had his assistant pastor do it, and he said, divorce is not an option. He said, murder, maybe, <laughs> but, but divorce is not an option. And then he said, you know, you have to decide now that you'll never use terms like divorce. You know, that's the big D word is, is a, is a, is a um, forbidden word in your house. Leave me, you know, and you say things in a fight that you don't mean. You say things in a moment because, you know, you're verbally jabbing each other. And you know the big right overhand hook that lands on the jaw every time is divorce. Or then why don't you leave? Because that gets the other person's attention and it's effective. So you don't want that. You really don't want the other person to leave. You really don't want divorce. But it's effective in a fight. So you, you throw it out there. And it's dangerous. Because if you say it enough, it can become a reality. And, 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 and Pastor Bob told Lydia and I, he said, never allow that to enter into your marriage. Never use the word divorce. Never, never threaten to leave one another. You, you know that you are together until kingdom come, until death do, do us part. And, and if you live that way and you start that way, what's, what happened was Lydia and I knew from the beginning that we were going to be together forever. So we found the best solution in every problem that we had. And then when we came to problems and solving, we didn't try to find band-aids that, well, if things don't work out, then, you know, we'll just put a band-aid on it for now so that, that we can get through this day. No, we had to have a permanent solution. We had to have resolution. We had to have healing in our hearts. And divorce is not an option. And, and through that, through that, it strengthened our marriage. And it strengthened what, what, what God's intention was. You know, God's intended and God's laid out a way that we can have a good married life. He's laid out two simple rules for husbands and wives. And, and a lot of divorce issues, um, well, every, every marriage issue stems upon the two biblical concepts of marriage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and see that he gave himself for and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And everything stems from that. But usually, you know, oftentimes when, when we're dealing with um, marital problems or, 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 or rocky situations, it started with one of the two or both maybe departing from um, personal intimacy and devotion with God. You know, I think there's been times, if I'm being honest, where, you know, I, I haven't been the husband um, that Lydia needed me to be. And I was failing in our home. And, and rather than, 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 than look at me for something that I just wasn't doing and providing, Lydia had to strengthen herself in the Lord. And, and she, she had to do what God called her to do for me, but as unto the Lord. And get her eyes off of me and get her eyes on Jesus and let Jesus motivate her. And let Jesus help her to be obedient to do the things that God's called her to do in marriage. And that's been the thing that's got us through a lot of times. And then more times than not, it's been me who's had to go to the Lord for help <laughs> to get through the issues. No. So... Jesus uses some strong language, and he tells the original heart of marriage. Now, now for those, again, for those that maybe have experienced divorce in the past, or those that, you know, what, what the scripture I read in Deuteronomy, what it's saying is that they can't come back, the husband can't take her back, because, you know, what would happen is you could, you could have these loopholes through the law of Moses, and, you know, a wife might say, well, he can only leave me for sexual immorality, so I'll go and, and I'll have sexual immorality and then he'll divorce me and then I'll be free to go do what I want. And then, and, then, and then I can go back an hour later and get remarried to him. 
Well, with the Lord, uh, you know, a day is a thousand years, a thousand years a day. So it doesn't matter if it's, you know, a, a, an hour later or 10 days later. She, you know, you've still been involved and the husband's not to take her back because of sexual immorality. And the divorce that's forbidden here again is, you know, for the case of um, sexual immorality. So, so again, if, you know, you want to leave because you, for reasons of sex, or you have an affair, or you meet somebody and, and, and God forbids that. Now, does God forbid or do we as a church, you know, never counsel that it's, it's divorce is an option in your marriage? Well, number one, if, if, if you come to me and, and, and a husband is being physically abusive to a wife, I'll never, I'll never counsel her to stay in that house. Maybe not divorce, something, but definitely separation and safety. Change the locks, kick him out, you get out. You know, and, and if somebody wants to tell me, oh, well, you're counseling divorce, I'll say, yeah, okay, let me find the biggest guy that I know. He's going to come live in your house, and he's going to beat you up every day for a couple of days and see how you like it. And I never counsel anybody. Never counsel anybody to have to stay in a situation where somebody's physically abusive. In the case of sexual immorality in a marriage, God has said, and Jesus said here, that you have the right to divorce, to leave. Pretty sure if I committed sexual immorality, my wife would divorce me. And have every right to. And, 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 you know, but I, I will say this, the Bible doesn't say you have to get a divorce. You know, I'll tell you the hardest thing that we've ever counseled through is, is sexual immorality. And it's very, 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 very few marriages that I've, I've personally witnessed survive it. Nine out of 10 that I've personally dealt with ha- have not, or more than that. But it can, and you do have the right to stay, you can. There was a prophet in the Old Testament whose wife was unfaithful and God um, continued to encourage him to go back and stay with her. She showed up pregnant. and It wasn't his kid. And so he just named the kid, not my son. <laughs> hey, what's your name? Not my son. <laughs> not my kid. It's like, yeah, that's not my kid. But God counseled him to stay. I have a pastor friend who's an amazing pastor and his wife and they were young and he was in the military when they first got married and he was overseas and he, he had an affair and she stayed and God has completely healed their marriage and, and God has completely used and, and they're, they're a rare case. But today, they, they can counsel and they can, she can say, I've lived it and walked through it and God can use them to help other people who are going through a similar situation to, to be able to be healed and helped. But, it, but you do, again, biblically, what Jesus said, that is the reason for, um, for, the, for divorce. So again, not for the purpose of fornication. That's, that's the idea. You, you know, you, you, you don't have that right. So then it says here again in verse 11, but he said to them, all cannot accept this saying. Oh, I'm sorry, because the disciples in 10 said, well, then who, who was better not to marry? That's crazy. That's a high standard. I got to stay with this girl forever. Yeah, you do. You know, it's better to stay forever. You know, the best sex is with two couples that have been together for more than five, ten years and have only been with each other. And what does the world tell you? That, that, are, that, that you know, erotic intimacy and pleasure is derived from multiple partners and, and on multiple different occasions and different things. And that's the farthest from the truth. That's the worst pleasure that's out there. And what's proven scientifically from secular studies is that monogamy between a husband and a wife that have been together for a long time. 
Also, also Duke University did a very interesting study, a, a secular um, university, and not, again, not, not swayed because of Christian values, secular university. They, they had couples that were on the brink of divorce, and they studied the couples, and the couples who, who got a divorce and the couples who stayed together, they went back, and five years later, they checked on all of their lives. And they found that the couples who worked through the very difficult situations and stayed married were happier than the couples who divorced. The couples who divorced five years later were miserable. And they were on to another marriage and another marriage and all the other things that go on with with the kids and all those things. And then he said to them in verse 11, All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were, who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Do you know what a eunuch is? Let me ask you this. Do you know what a eunuch is missing? <laughs> Castration. A eunuch is a male who is missing a, a, a part of his body, um, if anybody doesn't know. And so Jesus is talking about the idea of celibacy. And he said, not all can accept it, but only those to whom it has been given. So what has been given to those that, that, that have this certain call is a gift of celibacy. Now, you know, men and women have been created naturally by God to have a desire for intimacy. That desire for intimacy, that drive that men have, that women have, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's godly. God's given you that. You know, we get frustrated with, you know, our teenagers at times because they're, they're driven. But actually, we just have to appreciate that, that God has given them that drive. And, and then hope to funnel it in, in a direction where they want to honor God with it. You know, God doesn't say that, that sex is bad. God says that um, he doesn't say never. He says not now for young people. And what the devil tells you is that, you know, that's, that God says it's bad and that you should never. And that's not what, that's not what the God, God says at all. It's not what the Bible says. God just says not now. You know, a fire in the fireplace at my home heats my house. And it's a great thing, right? A fire on the couch in my home is not a good thing. A fire in the backseat of my car is a terrible thing. But a fire in the right place under, under the right circumstances is a blessing of God. And God, and God has created it such that it's, it's designed and, and it's intended for, for pleasure. It's intended as long as it stays within the confines of, of, of marriage and of the design of God. And it's blessed by God. And then, the, and then as the disciples ask this question, Jesus is going to bring up just in these couple verses the idea that some men, you know, the Apostle Paul he, he lived a single life because of ministry. But he was called to it and he was gifted for it. And not all men are gifted to do that. And, and, and so the Apostle Paul, what's also interesting though about the Apostle Paul was that the Apostle Paul was married. Did you know that? Um, and we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us what happened to Paul's wife. Some, some suggest that the Apostle Paul's wife, you know, because the Apostle Paul was a staunch Pharisee, and, and, and not a believer in, in, in Yeshua. And when, and when Paul received Yeshua as his Messiah, that she didn't, that she stayed true to her roots and, and she wouldn't convert, and that she left Paul at that time. We don't know. That's the idea. Maybe she died. 
She definitely disappears, but Paul was a, a voting member of the Sanhedrin. And one of the rules to be a member of the Sanhedrin was that you had to be 30 years old and married in order to be on the council of the Sanhedrin, a very prestigious council of 70. And Paul was one of the youngest members of the council and a leader in the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. So he had to be married at one point in his life. But as Paul's ministry goes on and we, we follow, beginning in about Acts chapter 10, the entire rest of the, the, the book of Acts and then most of the New Testament is about the life of Paul. And, and, and Paul was not married until he died. So he lived and, and was gifted the gift of celibacy. But for those that try to live celibate, men that try to live in celibacy without a supernatural gift of God, it doesn't go well. It's part of the problem of the, of, the, of, of the controversy and the things that are going on with the Catholic priests. And unfortunately, what's happened is the Catholic Church has put a, a requirement upon the priests that they, that they have to stay celibate, but they've not been given a gift of God of celibacy. And just like you and I, they have natural desires and, and God-given um, desires that, that are not being met. And so it's turning into perversion. But for those that are called... Those that are gifted, and you just have to know that you're called and gifted. We had um, uh, uh, several missionaries in our church back home who were in their 40s and had never been married because they did missions work abroad all over the nation, and God gave them a supernatural gift to stay single. And, and, and because of ministry, they, they didn't have the, the ability to have a husband or a wife. Both male and female missionaries that... That, that were at JS. One of them now is now married, married like at 45 years old, lived a celibate life and, and honored the Lord until they were 45. And, and then God changed that. And so um, then, then the idea of the eunuch, summer made eunuchs, I guess there was a guy who read this and thought that God wanted him to be a eunuch. And so he castrated himself. And then later he found out his theology was bad. <laughs> One more story. And then we're going to talk about kids for a minute. Um, true story. I heard this. I thought it was pretty good. Um, Neil Armstrong, when he landed on the moon, you guys know his, his famous line. One small step for mankind, for man, one giant step for mankind. And then, um, when he got back on the spaceship, space shuttle, his mic was still on and he said, good luck, Mr. Degrassi. And when he got home, they, those in the thing, they, they knew his famous statement of, of, of Neil Armstrong. And they, they, they would ask him, what did you mean when you said, good luck, Mr. Degrassi? And he would never answer them. He'd just kind of smile and just wave it off, but he would never give an answer. And, and later, it was like 1990s, someone had asked him, what did you mean, good luck, Mr. Degrassi? And he said, well, I, I can tell you now because, because they're both dead. He said, but when I was a kid, in my neighborhood in Jersey where I grew up, or Ohio where I grew up, um, I was playing baseball, and the, the, the ball went into my, uh, my neighbor's house, Mr. Degrassi's house, and he said it was before the days of air conditioning, and their windows were open, and him and his wife were having a fight. And I went to get the ball, and I heard his wife say, Sax, Sax, you want sex? When that little boy next door walks on the moon. <laughs> so I was just saying, good luck, Mr. Degrassi. Verse 13, and then again, 13 is tied to the idea of marriage. And so it's, it's interesting, again, because the idea of marriage and divorce, and it's, it's not God's will 
um, for those things because of the harm that happens to the children, because the way that the children are taken. And so the fact that it's mentioned, this little story is brought up here, I don't think is by accident. It says, then the little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hand on them and departed from there. So, um, again, this, this kind of thing happened one other time. And, you know, the disciples tried to forbid the, the children from coming because Jesus was busy and he didn't have time for them. And he's too important. And, you know, don't, don't have the kids hinder. And Jesus rebuked the disciples in a very strong rebuke. And, and he said, let the little children come to me. He was going to make time to spend with the little children. And the value of him. Then when he put one on his lap, he said, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless you become as this little child. And then the childlike faith. You know what's bound up? You know, there's sin and rebellion bound up in the heart of a child, right? It, it's not that, that, that children have this amazing, you know, uh, purity. That, that they, were, they were just like you and I. They were born with sin. They're just as greedy and, and selfish as, as any adult. It's just all bound up in a little, you know, in their little body. You know, you, you know, it's funny. It's interesting about kids. You don't have to teach kids to lie. You don't have to teach kids to be greedy or sin. You have to teach them to share and you have to teach them to tell the truth. And, and, and so, yeah, kids were still born with sin nature. The kids are also born with an amazing childlike faith to believe. And, and they're not, their minds aren't clouded with intellect and problems. They just believe. They believe their parents. They you know, the boys don't anymore. They're too old. But Gabrielle still thinks I'm really cool. <laughs> it's just that childlike faith that just believes, you know. And, and, and there's, some, there's a value in just believing the things that God says. Jesus said we have to humble ourselves and become like these little children. You know, the other thing about a child that's interesting in this analogy is that, you know, little children require someone to take care of them. Little children require someone to feed them and nurture them, and, and, and they're dependent upon a father and a mother. And for us as, as believers, in order to be, um, in order to, we have to be dependent upon God the Father, amen? He's going to talk about it. It's going to tie into the next thing. That rich people have a problem because they, 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 for those that trust in their riches, they don't trust in God. And a child who requires a parent to provide for them to live, we have to be like that child and require and, and desire that God will take care of our needs. And then he says in verse 16, he says, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Somebody say do. Somebody say shark do, 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 do. Don't do it. Gabrielle, Gabrielle's into that right now, and I've about had enough. Do you know that, that? Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, but shark do-do-do-do, baby shark do-do-do-do. Sue, I pay attention. I know daddy shark and grandma shark. It, it, it broke all records. It's, it's the most watched video on YouTube in human history. It, it, and oh my gosh. But so do, remember do. What must I do? So this guy, we call him, this is the story of the rich young ruler. It's mentioned in three of the Gospels. And so when a story is repeated in multiple Gospels, there's an emphasis. And this guy is hung up on a couple things in his life. His, his religion, his, his wanting to do things that please God in order to earn his salvation. He has everything going for him. Everything in the United States right now that, that the world struggles with, that desires that they think will make them happy. To be rich, 
to be young and to be powerful. You know, everything is the new fountain of life to make you young and Botox and this and that and on and on and on. And this fascination with looking and staying young. And, you know, we have 70-year-old women in Hollywood that look like they're 30 because of all the surgeries and Botox and all the things going on and on and on because of this, this idea that youth is what will make you happy. And this young man has it all. He's powerful. He's rich. He's young. He's a go-getter. And he said to him, or Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. So what Jesus is saying here very, 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 very clearly is that he is God. That, or he's saying that he's no good. And I'm pretty sure Jesus is not saying that he's no good. But he understood that if you're going to call me good, only one is good, and that's God. And Jesus claims again in one of many places in the Bible, the New Testament, to be God. And it says, but if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And the young man said, or he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. Really quick, little side note right there. Did Jesus say thou shalt not kill or did he interpret it the way that it's meant to be here? What did he say? He said, thou shalt not murder, which is a big, big difference between killing and murder. You know, because some people will say sometimes, oh, the Bible says thou shalt not kill. No, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says thou shalt not murder. So that's what Jesus says here. He gives clarification. So there was a side note. He said, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. So there's two tables of the Ten Commandments. Some of them dealing with our relationship to God and some of them dealing with our relationship to man. So all of the ones that Jesus listed here are in the second table of the, of the commandments that are our relationship to our fellow brother. How we should treat each other. We shouldn't steal from one another. We shouldn't lie to one another. We shouldn't murder one another. We shouldn't commit false uh, witness. We shouldn't commit adultery. We should honor our father and mother. And we should love our neighbor as ourselves. And the young man said in verse 20, All these things I have kept from my youth. What do, I, what do I still lack? Now, first of all, the, the, the young man wanted to earn something. He wanted to do something to earn his salvation. He wanted to be good enough to earn God's favor. And he, and he thought pretty highly of himself, and no doubt he was a moral person. This wasn't somebody who was immoral. This was somebody who was, by most standards, really good. Now, I don't know how many of these he actually kept from his youth. I'm sure he was a moral and a good person. But, but if we hold him to God's standards, he obviously doesn't. I mean, one of them is to love your neighbor as yourself. He was rich. If your neighbor doesn't have what you have and you really love them like yourself, you give them what you have. And, and so no doubt, like the rest of us, he would have struggled in areas. And all of the law of Moses is tied together. For anybody who wants to please God based on the law, based on rules and regulations on your do's and don'ts, I want you to understand something about the law of Moses. If you break one jot or tittle of the law of Moses, you're guilty of 100% breaking it. So don't be somebody who wants to communicate and relate to God based on rules and regulations unless you're absolutely perfect. Jesus said the standard was all you have to do is be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. You know, it's the idea like if you're in a boat... And the boat has 10 planks along the bottom that keep the water out as you float along the ocean. How many planks have to be missing for the boat to sink? Just one. You're still going down. And so one jot or tittle, one part of the law of Moses is broken. You're guilty of the whole law. And the whole point of that is to, again, make the point that nobody can earn. 
Nobody can keep the law. Only one person in history ever kept the law of Moses perfect, and that was the Lord Jesus himself. And so here this guy is trying to be justified based on his keeping of the law, and in his own mind, he thinks he's pretty good. And that's the problem with being a good person, because I don't care if you're a child molester or if you're a, a super saint, you, you think you're pretty good. You know, before I came to Christ, I thought I was pretty good. I was moral. I didn't sell drugs on Sunday. I didn't cheat people. You know, I did, I did things honest. And, and so then Jesus said to him, after he said, what do I lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now, this idea of go and sell all that you have and give to the poor is not a universal commandment. So relax. You don't have to, in order to be a Christ follower, sell everything you own and give it to the poor. Many, many people in the Bible were very wealthy that God used. Nicodemus was a very wealthy man. Jesus had lots of wealthy friends. The person who, whose tomb he was buried in was a wealthy guy. The Garden of Gethsemane where he prayed in was a wealthy friend of his. Abraham was super wealthy. Job was super wealthy. David was super wealthy. Solomon was the richest man that ever lived. And so it's not the, 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 the universal commandment that we have to sell everything we own. What is universal in this commandment is the part where Jesus said, come and follow me. But what Jesus does and what he does so powerfully through all of the scripture is he looks into every one of your hearts and he identifies the one thing that is keeping you from following Jesus. And what is it in your life today? For everybody, it's different. And maybe it is you trust in your riches. Maybe it's, a, it's, it's other things in your life. It's addiction. It's bondage. It's pride. It's areas that you won't give up to follow God. And for you, the Lord might have this same conversation and he would identify a different part of your life that was keeping you hung up. But for this young man, Jesus was able to look into his heart and see that his problem was he trusted in those riches. What would he have had to do to sell everything he owned and give it to the poor? He would have had to trust God, right? He would have had to believe that God was going to give him his next meal. And because he trusted in his riches and not in his God... He struggled with this commandment. And it says he went away really sad because he, he had many riches. He was a wealthy guy. And he wasn't about to give those things up. You know, I think it was Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was a missionary who um, went to, to the Auka Indians and wanted to give, wanted to his whole life to be a missionary. He was a headhunting and a, and a brutal tribe of Indians in Peru. And they finally made contact with the Auka Indians on the beach in order to bring him the gospel. And they were murdered on the beach. Every one of them went run through with a spear. And he said, he, before this, he's, he said, he is no fool who, uh, who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And so this young man, he, he goes away sad because he wants to do. You know, remember Naaman the leper? Naaman the leper was a, was, a, was a king of Syria. He was a very powerful warrior in the Old Testament. And he comes to Israel because he heard that Elijah could heal and he had leprosy. And Naaman comes and Elijah doesn't even come out of his house. 
Elijah sends word to Naaman and he says, tell Naaman to go dip seven times in the Jordan River and he'll be made well. And, and Naaman, he gets angry. And he says, are there not better rivers in Syria that I could dunk in? If you've seen the Jordan River, you understand why. There's nothing to it. And it's muddy in a lot of places like the Mississippi. And, 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 and Naaman's servant talked some sense into him. And he said, Naaman, he said, had the prophet told you to go do some noble thing, you would have gladly done it. Had he told you to climb the mountain and slay the dragon to earn this healing, you would have been excited to do it. But because he told you to do something very simple, you're offended. And, and you don't think that it'll work. And, and, and God tells us very simply, trust and believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And we say, no, it's got to be something I have to do to earn my salvation. And if God had given you something that you had to do to get saved that was noble, you'd have no problem doing it. But we have a problem because God's word simply says, trust and believe on the Lord Jesus and put your faith in him and you'll be saved. And, and for this young man, he was, he was like Naaman. He was offended because there wasn't something that he could do to earn his salvation. And Jesus told him, there's nothing you can do to add to the cross. You know, the bottom line is, if, 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 if you can do something, if you have to do something to earn your salvation, then why did Jesus die on a cross? And by saying that you need to do something to get saved, you're saying that the work of Jesus on the cross was, was insufficient, and that's blasphemous. The work of Jesus on the cross is complete for your salvation. All you need to do is receive grace gracefully and receive the free gift that God gives. Listen, God's going to call you to, to lots of good works and lots of things. But first we receive. Hey, just give me two minutes and we're going to finish up. Um, and then in verse 23, it says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Surely I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And so the, what this says here is that it's impossible for somebody who trusts in their riches to enter the kingdom of God. Has no, no prohibitions in the Bible about being wealthy. What the Bible prohibits is you trusting in your wealth. You know, I had some friends, Lydia and I had some friends, wonderful Christian people. And they, they were very blessed by God. They were, they were 